chapter seven. Convicted cop killer Gerald Mason died in prison in 2017. But before that, he was named in a 1960s jailhouse confession about Mary Shotwell Little's murder. There's one big problem. The admitted accomplice, the confession's author, Larry Stargell, also died in prison. Two convicted murderers, both dead. Still, no justice for Mary. But does a dismissed admission from years ago still carry any truth today? Retired investigator Glenn Martin worked on Mary's case for the Fulton County Cold Case Unit. And now he's picked up where he left off with the task force. I remember this from day one. Gerdine and I are probably the only ones that remember this from day one. Uh, so, you know, I've always been interested in it. Actually, this case was assigned to Al Calhoun, who Ron and I worked with. And it was not my case, but I saw that Alton wasn't really working too hard on it. So I asked him <laughs> if, I, if he minded if I did a few things on it, you know. And it's no problem. So I kind of took the case from him. And there was a guy who had killed um, two police officers back in the 50s who was recently uh, apprehended, and he, he was known to frequent uh, Charlotte and, and Raleigh. So I, I sent a friend out there that was obtained in the Mary Charlotte. I was really excited about it, you know, because this guy was still, he's, he's recently passed, but, um, but you know, I came back negative so, so. The man Glenn Martin is referring to is Gerald Mason. Another inmate made a stunning claim. Larry Stargell was sitting in prison in the 60s when Stargell named Mason as an accomplice in Mary's murder. And he's a hot topic for the task force. They debate its validity to no end. In fact, Greg Moffat's work on Mary's case started by analyzing his 1966 confession and subsequently ruling him out as a suspect or his statement as the truth. You said you were uh, called in to kind of determine if that guy had done it. How do you determine something like that as, as a profiler? Um, it comes down to honesty, what's plausible. And in, in any interaction with anybody, we're constantly assessing, is this believable or not? And believability, whether it's your kids or your spouse or somebody you work with or jailhouse confession, it's all based on the same set of principles. We come in with a set of assumptions of the likelihood of believability. So if your spouse says, hey, I'm going to lunch with Bob, unless you have some reason to believe otherwise, you assume it to be true. With certain populations, just the opposite assumption is the case. Um, do people have good reason to deceive? As a clinician, our clients are constantly not telling us the truth for a whole host of reasons. So um, if you ever chose to go to a counselor, you might come in and just spill the beans the first day. Chances are also likely you'll come in and give partial stories or maybe diversionary stuff to see whether you can trust the person or not. That's the way the relationship works. So as a counselor, I'm assuming I'm not getting the whole story from the get-go. Certainly in the, the law enforcement world, which is where this falls, people have huge motive to lie. So let's suppose you're married and your husband's been running around for the last 10 years with 15 different people. You can assume when he says, I'm going to lunch with Bob, uh, chances are pretty good he ain't going to lunch with Bob. Now it might be, but we start with the opposite end. So we come in with that assumption 
believable or not believable, and we start there. And that's how he approached Larry Stargell's statement. The guy that proposed this story, even though I wasn't interviewing him face to face, his story was, um, the words were there. And people do certain things when they lie. For example, they give lots of information that is irrelevant. So if I said, hey, you know, we have 15 minute lapse in our time today. What happened? Oh, I got stuck in traffic. Well, maybe it was lots of things. The issue is, yeah, bummer, sorry. That's the story. You're not going to tell me, oh, yeah, I got stuck in traffic, and then my mom called, and I had to run and get some chiclets at the 7-Eleven or what. It's irrelevant. You're not going to tell me that. When people lie, especially bad liars, they do a lot of that. And police officers, I don't know if you ever watch police television or not, I don't watch too much of it, but I, uh, in the training process of police officers, if you teach them, be quiet, let people talk. They'll talk themselves into a circle. People that are honest, hey, where are you off to today? Oh, I'm heading to work. Well, maybe you're going to work later and you're stopping into the dry cleaner on the way. Those are irrelevant details. The liar is going, well, I was going to work and, and I'm going to stop at the dry cleaners. It's right on the way. They're going to give you all the stuff. So that's a huge issue for me. Believability comes also down to um, what details are there that we can verify? What details are inconsistent as the story's retold? So in interviewing or interrogating, as it used to be called, a suspect, you do it over a number of hours, eight hours, or a number of days. Okay, let's go over that story again. Let's go over that story again. And when you're lying, you got to remember what you said. And... Um, people will almost always trip themselves up. Another issue is people, and this is really good liars, they'll tell you the the same story verbatim. The words never change. Because they've memorized it, so they don't have to remember. So you get this parroted thing, and there's some other things that can cause that, but that's as concise an answer as I can give you in terms of how you go about looking at it. So that's, that's a nutshell. After me to start writing the book on this, and if, if I did, I'd have to have four different endings. But Larry Sturgill's prison confession is one of Susan Carpenter's top theories when it comes to what really happened to Mary. One is that something was going on at that bank. I remember my husband saying, Mills Lane owns the Southeast. I mean, he was he, he owned CNS Bank. He, he owned politicians. He, you know, he was the richest man around. And something was going on at that bank, something that was either not just state illegal, but maybe federally illegal. And she knew about it. She had documentation of it and um, or was in a, was, they thought she did. She was in some kind of um, group of people that they thought knew something. And I think she, that, that scenario is she was kidnapped and murdered and her body dumped somewhere as an example, you know, to the rest of them. Um, but the question then is, why did they drive her to North Carolina? You know, that have you read that part? Yes. Seen that part? Why did they drive her and let two different service attendants see men in the car with a woman with her head covered with a towel um, and use her husband's credit card? That just is so bizarre. Um, it just, and then drive her car all the way back to Atlanta for her boss to find the next day. I don't think it was random. I don't think somebody just walked up there and grabbed her and took her. 
I think it has something to do with that bank that took her, that killed her. Her second theory involves two men and that prison confession. Larry Stargell and Gerald Mason, a.k.a. Jerry Mason, were known to frequent North Carolina. If you get to the part where you read Larry Stargell's, I mean, it is detailed, detailed, naming names, naming places. You know, when you get back and you read that, you can see where that scenario comes from and would work. So I read his prison statement. September 1966, 23-year-old Larry Stargell pins a letter to police from inside the walls at Reedsville State Prison. He's serving a life sentence for an unrelated murder conviction in Hall County. by a friend of his from South Carolina and said that him and this other friend of his were given a job and they were going to be paid 5000 now and 5000 later and they wanted to know if he wanted to be involved. He wanted to help him out. So yeah, he got involved and the story of what they said they did is that somehow they knew she was going to be at the, at the mall with her friend. They sat at the mall, saw her car pull in and saw her car pull in, pull in where she parked, saw watched her go shopping, and they went in and watched a movie in a movie theater. They watched this movie theater, this movie at the movie theater, and came out at just the right time and grabbed her, threw her in the car. I don't know how she got blood all over her, hit her in the head or something. Grabbed her, threw her in her car, and, you know, we are assuming that when this happened, somebody walked up to her after she had her keys out and, and grabbed her, put her in the car. One person took, drove off in her car. The other people drove off in the other car and um, they took her car and left it somewhere then they drove her uh, to North Carolina then down into South Carolina and kept her at this house there were several people watching her at different times and this one guy who's saying I'm not going to say was in the room with her uh, most of the time that she was beat up she was uh, God knows what else I mean he didn't say anything else he just said the other guy was in the bedroom a lot with her In his confession, Larry says, after holding her captive, the two men start driving her back to Atlanta. Jerry is driving, Larry's in the front passenger seat, and the other man is in the back seat with the woman he claims is Mary. But within 15 minutes of being on the road, the woman looks out the left rear window, and the man in the back seat with her grabs her by the mouth and pulls her over to him. Larry says he pulls out a long fishing type knife and plunges it under her left ear. She moans. He pushes the blade six or eight inches into her and blood gushes from her neck. The man pushes her to the floor like a lump of trash. She attempts to get up, but settles back into a heap on the floor where he throws a heavy rug over her body. After the two men drop off Larry at a hotel in Atlanta, he says he did not see them for about a week. And that's when he says Mason showed him where they buried her body at Atlanta airport. In my naivety, I thought, oh my God, he's confessing. Why did they not take this seriously, you know? Well, that confession got completely danced down. Nobody ever heard. I don't think it was ever in the paper. I don't think it ever went anywhere. And all kinds of other ridiculous things in the newspaper. I don't think that confession ever saw the light of day. How would he know those details? Well, that's what, that was my whole thing all along. 
You're right. He's not smart enough to make up. That means I was telling people. He's not smart enough to make up that story on his own. Yeah. So the only alternative is that he was given that story and said either we'll kill you if you don't tell this story or if you tell this story, we will uh, do something, get you out of jail early or something. Uh, But I now believe it was a total red herring because there are just too many holes. There's so many ifs. Know, but what if? And Larry Stargell died in prison. When he gave this story, he was serving time for murder. He gave this story and he was out because he killed somebody again and got sentenced to life and died in prison. Last year, Jerry Mason also died in prison. He was serving time for the murder of two California police officers, a sentence and conviction he had eluded for decades. Susan lays out her ever-evolving list of theories about what happened to Mary if the confession was nothing but an elaborate distraction from the truth. Theory two. There were so many red herrings thrown all over this. There was a there was a lesbian there was a lesbian you know group at the bank and and somehow uh, Mary was involved in it and somehow they got a hold of her and killed her. You know, <laughs> and yeah. supposedly every supposedly everybody at her bank, male and female, they were gay, and they would have all these gay orgies. You know, ridiculous stuff like that. But those were the times. Mm-hmm. They knew that that putting that kind of story out, if it had a, a racist implication, if it had a homosexual implication, putting a story out like that would take the attention off of whatever else was really going on. The longer they could get the spotlight off what was really going on, the longer they had to cover everything up. And that is really my theory. And I I have no idea where she is. I don't know if she went off and lived a life and just left her husband, you know, for some reason, and somebody, you know, took her off and she lived a life, or if she was murdered and dumped in the South Carolina, off the side of the road in South Carolina or somewhere else. But there was blood in her car. The way the blood was on the car, so it was smeared across the passenger side seat. Like somebody's head was bobbing back and forth across the seat, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was smearing it across the seat. It was against the passenger door. Like somebody's bloody head was lying against the passenger door. And then there was blood between the seat. But there didn't seem, the stuff in the back seat did not really seem to be disturbed if I'm remembering correctly. So it was like there was somebody driving and somebody in the passenger seat who was bloody. And there was blood on the door handle. Theory three. The other scenario that goes through my head is that she was made to leave. That somehow she was put... She was protected and made to leave and is living out there somewhere. Theory four. There's always this thing that she had a boyfriend calling her at the bank and it had something to do with that. Whatever happened to Mary, the bottom line is I believe that TNS Bank and the owner had some really big bad thing going on. Mary was somehow either knew about it or she was killed as an example or, or kidnapped as an example to the others. I think Diane may have gotten on to some of the same information. She left the bank. She had been working at the bank. She left the bank and was at another job when she was killed. When they found her, she had, you know, there's been different stories of what was stuffed down her throat, but it wasn't just stuffed in her mouth. There was, there was, some people say it was, 
it was telephone books, pages. Other people say it was just paper stuffed down her throat. One of our people is a very experienced DA and investigator, and he said that is a clear um, message of shutting up somebody. Yeah. You know, don't talk about this or this is going to happen to you. Um, and that was just a horrible, gruesome thing. Just a horrible thing they did to that girl. Well, of course, there would be the very startling story that that's just exactly what happened to that girl. That Mills Lane had her till had her kidnapped, and they were wait that the kidnappers were waiting on the second half of the money. There was some kind of argument about getting the money. They headed back and they killed her and dumped her out. That that because they weren't going to get their money. The other one is that for some either mafia or you know, whatever, uh, got rid of her for some reason because Mills Lane pissed them off, you know, if he's involved in some kind of illegal stuff. And the other thing is, well, what if, you know, the government did it, you know, for some reason? If they, if they, they said, you have to go with us, you know, and then covered it all up. My thinking on the reason it can't ever come out is that it was covered up. Whatever the bad stuff that was happening was going on, this was 1965. The FBI was not a good place in 1965. The FBI was uh, just not far-reaching into everybody's business. Um, people's phones were tapped, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they, that's why we are so skeptical of them today. Before Mary just decided she had enough and all and left, or she faked it herself. Now that's the fourth one, but she somehow faked it herself so she could get away. She didn't want to be with her husband anymore or something. Which is the least likely to me. The one I'd like to believe is that Larry Sargent told the truth, that they killed, that they kidnapped that poor girl and they, they tortured her or whatever and they killed her. That's the one that I would like to be the truth. I think that's why I honed in on it so much. Now I believe that that Sargent story was planted that he was given all of that and told to tell that story and he would get some kind of um, benefit from it. I don't know what kind of benefit, but that's what I believe now. Uh, he still died in prison for something else. I now believe that it was too... You know, I had so many people telling me, oh, no, he wasn't. Those boys in Gunnersville, they weren't smart enough to, you know, to pull that off, da-da-da-da-da. Well, maybe not. But they might have been smart enough to be given a story. He might have been smart enough to be given a story and told to tell it just like this for some reason, you know, to cover up. I think it was just a cover up. I think there's so many layers and layers and layers to this that peeling them away. And so after 50 years, uh, this is where we are <laughs> still. But John Fedak, he's not so sure about Larry's story. That chilled me for a, a week. A week I could not stop, I could not get that out of my damn brain. Why don't you think it was Mary in the car? Why did they take her to North Carolina? Why did they bring her back? Every second she's alive, every second she's dead, she, they're, they're, they're exposed, they're, they're, they're in jeopardy. And the bad, bad guys, and I'm gonna be very crude for a second, and I don't mean to in front of the lady, but when bad guys get, girl, get women, first thing they do is they assault them. I mean, that's, that is a, that is not that I mean that just happens. We all know that 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 when they get the power, and th that's what happens. They were told, "Here's five thousand dollars. Grab her, and then you'll get a call to what to do with her." But but here's the thing. 
you say, why did they take her to North Carolina? Yes. Well, someone did. She signed gas receipts. Exactly. But then, why did they take her? To, someone took her to North Carolina, <laughs> if you believe the gas receipts. And if you don't, you're nuts to me. You, that, that, that. I just felt like his story kind of aligned with some of those pieces that you're like... Oh, to a point, yes. Why in North Carolina gas receipts? Well, that would make perfect sense if... Yes. They were taking her to Mount Holly. But they're not going to... To me, they're not going to bring her back. Unless, some, unless they got a call. Okay, now bring her back. But why bring her back? Why murder? If they're going to bring her back, they're going to bring her back to, for a reason. Why murder her on the way? Hired hands. I mean, they, they would do what they're told. But why, why would Mr. Big say take her to North Carolina? My theory is that he was in a car, he witnessed or, or perpetrated a murder, he was not Mary Shields, he knows all of this because it, 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 all the details, because he either murdered a girl or he watched the murder of a girl who was not Mary, was not Mary Shotwell Little. Um, he's in prison, he's just trying to get notoriety, he's trying to buy, get, get a better deal. One of the major hiccups in both cases is the lack of evidence still around today and case files that have shuffled through the system, gone missing, and then some found again. Just like in 1994, when investigators went looking for evidence to test, only to find it had been thrown away because of the amount of time it sat on the shelf, Susan too is still trying to get her hands on entire case files and its accompanying evidence. I fucked everybody. I mean, I was I was very naive about this. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I had no problem calling up the chief of police's office and saying, hey, why can't, why can't, where is this file, you know? And unless we have the evidence disappearing on both of them, yeah, that, that just doesn't happen. I had so many different people give me explanations. Well, they moved the, the police department, and then at one time it flooded. You know, the Atlanta police department flooded, and they had, they moved everything, and da-da-da-da-da. Well, what about Diane Shields? Did they move that police department, and did that police department flood too? Where's the pathology report? There should be a pathology report that, that a, com- a complete thing from her autopsy that says everything that happened. Where is that? Somebody somewhere with strings has pulled this stuff away from us so that we can't see it. Numerous investigators from APD and the FBI have looked into Mary's disappearance. A handful from East Point investigated Diane's murder over the years. However, according to Georgia law, these cases have surpassed even the longest time requirements of holding on to the records. That's where the newly formed unofficial task force picks up, digging into what's left of the evidence in case files. There is so much that needs to be explored in this. The reason it hasn't been solved is because I think it was purposely shut down. I think it was purposely meant not to be solved. I think it was covered up. That's my bottom line. It was covered up. And I think the Atlanta Police Department was told to cover it up. And that's what they did. And they want the people nowadays, they won't say that, but the police officers, I don't think out loud, but I firmly believe they know that's what happened. And I ask them about, okay, in a case that you have worked on, for example, Glenn Martin had worked along, I mean, a little bit on the edges of the um, Wayne Williams Atlanta child murder cases. I don't know if how old are you, honey? Um, I'm 39, but I'm also not from here, but I'm familiar with okay. that. Okay. I'm familiar with the case. Yeah. Wait, and so I said, I said, Glenn, 
the evidence on that case, what happened to it? Oh, it was kept where we would have it, you know, in case other bodies came up down, you know, in case there were other victims. They knew where the evidence to that case was at all times. And, and I could ask any of those same police officers, okay, a case you did 20 years ago, do you think you could go and find the evidence box? And I bet you they'd say yes, you know. That is, I'm an attorney, that is not how evidence is treated. And two separate cases in two separate counties, I don't think so. So I believe it was a big time cover-up for some reason. I don't know why, but for some reason it was a big time cover-up. Unfortunately, both of the evidence boxes have disappeared, where they had like marriage panties, supposedly, a bra, and then all of the um, pathology stuff from Diane Shields, um, that's disappeared. I don't even know if there's even a, we've talked about trying to get a pathology report, but I don't even know if anybody's ever gotten it or if it even exists. And without something we can use for DNA, you know, we're kind of stuck. I have connections with a cousin who thinks that she could find somebody in the family to give some DNA if, if we had any need to. But the problem is we don't have anything of Mary yeah. to, com- you know, any, any evidence to compare it to. Even if we found something, we have nothing to compare it to. I don't even think the dental records are still in that file. Now, in the FBI file, there are some fingerprint cards. When you, there should be some fingerprint cards, but they're copies. Yes, I we don't know. Yeah, yeah, we don't. And I've had those run. Glenn Martin has run those twice, and they didn't come up. They weren't too degraded. They weren't good enough to get any information from. But somebody had the original fingerprint cards where they took the fingerprints off of the car. And um, and so those cards are somewhere. Retired journalist Jardine Dyer says he thought he was going to get his hands on some evidence never seen before, at least not publicly, and bring a new theory into focus. But, you know, that's not... Missing files make you... Of course, the story about... Uh, was it, what's his name, Warren Bond? Who's the guy? Not Warren, maybe the guy, the photographer. And uh, who that photograph, Diane Shields' body, because he worked, he's probably retired or he had to be by now, because he had, he had been at it, he was still at it when we talked to him in 2002, he still was there. He was a commercial photographer, he was still there. Mm-hmm. Their main photographer uh, for crime scene. And uh, he, you know, who was the, we had talked to a, Profiler, and uh, he said, you know, those pictures of Diane. If you had the negative, you might actually be able to get a fingerprint off her face because somebody put his hand over her face. Mm. And I said, he said, look at the. And I, I'd never, I'd seen those pictures a million times. He said, look at the hand that was placed over her mouth, and he said, somebody just squeezed her face. He said, you might, get, if you can get the negatives, uh, you might be able to get a fingerprint still. From the negatives and I said, oh so we contacted Warren Bond and he said and I, and I didn't tell him why but I said we we'd like to get the negatives uh, of those uh, things and he said oh, I'm sure I got them he said I catalog everything very meticulous I can find them for you by tomorrow he said I never uh, I never again I still keep them all because they might need them for court cases I got them and then he called me back, actually before I could call him the next day. It's the funniest thing, those are gone. I can't find them. And, you know, that, that gives you a bit of a, ooh. 
and, and uh, so because you know when you think it that could have been that could have been our ticket to Atlanta immortality if we like solve this case and maybe I don't know but you think but he's yeah I don't, he, I don't know what happened he's like, I keep everything in its place and they're gone there's just a lot of coincidences too many coincidences for to be comfortable but you know sometimes something you know could be two conspiracies running like you know different solar systems apart from each other and just one you know they're not sometimes things aren't linked but they appear linked maybe you know but I don't know I don't know but it, it was just too many things Forget about conspiracies. Like law enforcement, I have to be able to prove what's real and not real. As a journalist, I don't typically have the resources to test DNA or fingerprints. But what I do rely on for my investigations is interviews and the paper trail, reports and other documents from the case files, and photos, especially from the crime scene. But when there are missing puzzle pieces, it can stop me dead in my tracks. And the same holds true for detectives as well. Ron Walker admits the lack of evidence available to them, or still in existence, period, makes Mary and Diane's cases near impossible to solve more than 50 years later. Nowadays, you know, since the 80s, you know, when DNA was coming in, back in the 60s and 70s, you didn't have no DNA, so evidence was not kept like it is now. Nowadays, a crime scene, every evidence in the area room is taken. Back then, you know, you, you took blood samples, you found hair samples, that's about it. Uh, prints, you know, fingerprints. The Due to that reason, it makes it almost impossible to, to, to solve a case because there's no evidence. Uh, just like the blood in a car. Can't prove whose it is. Car's gone. You know, we don't have any clue where it's at. I think it was given back to the family. You know, you, you could take clothing and get, you know, DNA off that from other people. It's difficult on those cases, and, and but you still gotta try, and you still wanna try. These reports are so old. They've been scattered out. This person's had them, this person's had them, and pages are lost. So you try to make up, you know, what's in there and see what it was. Is it typical for case files and whole loads of evidence to just manage? Especially with <clears throat> two cases right. that are very similar and a lot go missing. Nowadays, no. But back in the 60s, 70s, files were not kept like they are nowadays. Not as secret, not as uh, secure. They were put in, a lot of times, just put in a box and put in a uh, room somewhere. You know, and people go in and go through them, things like this, looking for things. Nowadays, no, I couldn't. I would say that was not going to happen. But back then, yes, I, I would say that was probably typical. And they end up in the garbage can a lot of times. You know, uh, evidence just you know, after so long, departments get rid of evidence. And uh, back then, I don't think they had this stronghold on the uh, chain of custody, as we call it nowadays. I have talked with other detectives who have seen other things that I haven't seen yet, uh, saying that, you know, it could go either way. You know, they don't know. Uh, that's the problem. We're missing this and missing that, and we can't put it together because of if she was threatened, if she was, you know, coerced into not saying anything, or she threatened them to talk and say, hey, I'm going to go tell. That's the other part. So you got three, four different avenues you can go, and, and the theory is like a, like a book, I guess. You know, you wait till the end to get to the end, but there's no end to this one yet. Uh, and, and worse than that, it's it's like a jigsaw puzzle with about a half dozen pieces missing. A bunch so of pieces. No full picture. There's never has been a full picture to this. I think even from the beginning, because from the way it sounds, somebody just didn't want to give up the information. And I've never seen a case guarded like this case. 
You mean law enforcement? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. And uh, by different agencies. You know, you go say, hey, can we look at this report? Mm, I don't know. You can have this part. Or you get a report that's been blacked out. You only can read two or three lines off a page. That's the part I don't like. I thought it was kind of different that they were very guarded to let us look at the reports and that we were really limited on what they gave us, I think. I mean, when you get a report, a case like that, and you get a little file about this thick, something's not right. From who did you get that? Well, the federal level, mm -hmm. and now, and, uh, or if you get a book like this and there's not a whole lot left in there. That's the problem I have with it. It just feels like there's something being covered up or protected. Bob Matthew says it wouldn't have been that hard to lose files from these cases intentionally if necessary. One of my detectives, an Atlanta homicide detective, uh, Jim Rose and, and, and uh, Ronnie Walker is my detective, they were working Fulton County DA's office on a cold case file and they were able to find the Atlanta files from wherever they were spent all these years. So we pretty much managed to get that back. And then like I say, we through the years, through what little we, we could find, and then some, some old retired officers had, had bits and pieces of stuff and, and stuff we were able you know put together a pretty complete file of, of, of what we should have had. You know, the actual original file is still, we don't know where it is, but I know it, it was locked up in the captain's office, you know, back in 74. So hmm. after that, Lord knows. Do you think it's time or something more nefarious? In other words, that is it just the passage of time that resulted in that loss, or do you think someone made it disappear? To answer that, the CNS Bank was was not real happy at the time about any investigations going on that might involve them. Uh, there was a lot of people involved with the bank that were powerful, powerful politically. So, like I say, the CNS Bank, you know, they had an interest in, in you know not being involved. You know, it, it looked bad for them. You know, it was bad publicity, you know, being linked to their employees or, you know, bad things are happening to them. Well, I mean, the CNS Bank and First National Bank were probably the two major banks in Atlanta. And, uh, of course, CNS Bank had, had deep roots and, you know, a lot of powerful people involved, you know, with it. Such as? Uh, well, an ex-governor, you know, or current governor at the time, maybe. Um, I, you know, it just, all, all of them were like that, though. They had, you know, powerful people involved you know, with them. But I mean, it's... So if someone wanted that file to disappear, it probably wouldn't have been hard, no? Well, you have to figure, due to the sheer magnitude of all the cases that could have been misplaced, it's kind of curious, though, that they both were misplaced. While Ron was on the case for the cold case unit in Fulton County, he not only hit roadblocks with evidence, but also with the FBI. We talked to several, or the, I think the lead the, uh, FBI agent who has passed away at this time. Um, he just said it wasn't connected. He didn't think it was connected and that, that, that's it. Nobody really wanted to talk about it anymore, which led him to his own theory about what happened at least to Mary. Everybody was kind of hesitant to talk with us about it. Uh, the departments that usually handle cases like this work together usually. At this time, I found we found a lot of resistance on, on other levels of the uh, government. Such as? Well, the FBI handled the case, you know, beginning. And then uh, people with the bank, you know, that was in charge of the bank and, and ran the bank was kind of hesitant to talk with us about it. Nobody wanted to tell us anything. Um, did get with family members, but, you know, they need very little. 
uh, tried to find friends, couldn't do. Where do you think that resistance comes from? <sighs> the only thing, I, I, I can't, you know, it, there's something more to the case, I think, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, my belief is that possibly uh, Mary Shotwell Little was, was not killed. That's, that's one of my theories. Um, the car, you know, it had just a little tiny, you know, just a little uh, bit of blood. <clears throat> Her clothes were folded. Nothing was tore up in the car. Uh, it just didn't seem like that's a someone who had been beaten in the car and, and taken somewhere and dumped. It just didn't seem like that's possible. I'm wondering if possibly something was going on with the bank that was not on the up and up, you know, illegal. Uh, there were uh, ties in the bank that the, I mean, that the owner at that time was a high public uh, political figure. Uh, ties with the uh, boxing uh, business out in, out west. Uh, it just seemed like maybe she was told to be quiet and didn't and, you know, maybe transferred her to, you know, another state, another area. I don't know. Uh, possibly just to maybe keep her quiet of anything that was going on because there were signs of uh, things going on at the bank that was not legal, you know, from what I, we could see from the reports. And, and from there, I'm, I'm just wondering, is she still here? You know, she's still alive. If someone was put into protective custody, how does, do you know how that works? Would you be privy to that information? No, that's gonna be on a federal level only. Uh, only the only protective custody we would ever be concerned with was the, like a witness who was being threatened or something like that. We would, uh, basically back when I first started these points, you could put them in a jail cell and hold them with their will because they wanted to. Uh, other than that, no, there's no protective custody as far as we're concerned. Uh, and what, uh, based on your knowledge, what are, what does federal custody look like, uh, protective custody? Ooh, that I don't know. I just, I've never dealt with it. Uh, I've worked with the, the uh, FBI on several cases, but that's something they don't give out. You just don't get that information. Anybody. Right. I mean, essentially, they vanish, and no one knows. No one knows. There might be one agent that knows Possibly, because they put yeah. them there. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm right that she's still alive. And, uh, of course, you know, with the East Point case, the Diane Shields case, and, you know, we can't say that. I think it's related because it comes from the same bank. To me, that makes it related. Uh, two different people, same not the same exact uh, office department, but same bank. And they're both, one missing and one's dead. Something similar to both cases in my, in my book. I think they're two of the same. I think it's the same similarities are there. And I would like to be able to prove that, you know, one day. Something, something's up, something we just don't know, you know. Uh, that's the bad part about it is, Everybody that was involved, or most everybody, has passed away, or they're just hiding out and they don't want to talk. Even years later, people don't like to talk because they're still scared. Uh, again, my only thing was is the the political figures that owned the bank, ran the bank, uh, the sports figures who had hand, their hands in the bank. <laughs> you get up people like that, and they, you know, they have a lot of influence. Well, I mean, money is one of the top motives for right. murder, right? Exactly. 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 So you got three, four different avenues you can go, and and the theory is like a like a book, I guess. You know, you wait till the end to get to the, end, but there's no end to this one yet.
The, the mystery of it all is what happened to her. Was it in Atlanta? Did it, was she kidnapped from Atlanta, taken to North Carolina, murdered there, disposed of? And that's, that's what the mystery is. It's still a huge mystery. And it's so deeply buried that we may never know. Um, and that's what's so sad about it. And the reason it hasn't been solved is because I think it was purposely shut down. I think it was purposely meant not to be solved. I think it was covered up. That's my bottom line. It was covered up. And I think the Atlanta Police Department was told to cover it up. And that's what they did. I mean, it's just this, this conglomeration of questions. That's all it is, and no answers. And I firmly believe that those two girls who never knew each other, whatever happened to them, they are connected for eternity for some reason that we still don't know. Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flacari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold.